You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. And we're looking this morning at chapter 2. You'll find this on page 774 of the Pew Bible. We're looking at Jonah chapter 2, and we're going to be reading together the entire chapter. Hear the word of God. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet... I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The last time we looked at this, we learned that Jonah had been swallowed by a great fish, obviously. He had been running away from his commission to preach in Nineveh. And Jonah knew those pagans would likely be spared because of God's rich mercy. And this didn't sit well with him as they were the sworn enemies of Israel. So he skipped town and boarded a ship and headed for far off Tarshish. But while he could run, he could not hide. God hurled a storm against the ship, and when the sailors inquired, the lot fell to Jonah, and he told them to cast him overboard. And when they did so, the storm immediately ceased, and the sailors worshipped Yahweh. Meanwhile, Jonah was swallowed and presumably died in the depths of the sea. And it's amazing, isn't it, what providence can do to intensify one's spiritual fervor? In the belly of the fish, descending to the unknown depths, Jonah prayed. There was nothing else he could do. He was in a very difficult spot. In the text, he records for us the thoughts of his heart as he looked to the Lord. And it's an incredible prayer. It's an incredible prayer of a man who was experiencing the unthinkable. 
He was encased in the belly of a fish, wrapped in weeds and on the brink of eternity. And Jonah didn't know what would happen. (laughs) He just might well be fully digested for all he could think of. What goes through the mind of a prophet when he's faced with such a situation as this? As he himself tells us, he called out to the Lord, who graciously answered him, according to verse 2. He was in distress, which I think was an understatement. He was in dire straits. And few things are more terrifying to the oriental mind than sinking into the depths of the sea. I can relate. I don't like sharks. Ancient people lived in fear of the sea, the great unknown the dark depths. Having been cast into the murky waters, he was considered as good as dead. Because to survive was considered a truly remarkable and extraordinary occurrence. This is one reason why it says of the new heaven and the new earth, the sea was no more. That's comforting to a Jew. And it also helps explain why Jonah's language in prayer is especially vigorous. He's underscoring here the severity and the magnitude of his terrifying predicament. He's swallowed by a great fish. It says in verse 2, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Literally, out of the belly of hell I cried. That's the language that he's using. And he describes his ordeal in the strongest of terms because he was at the utter extreme. He could feel the bone-chilling presence of death starting to creep over him. In the belly of that great fish, all he could do was pray to the Lord. And he highlighted the gravity of his situation by other vivid descriptions. Look at verse 3. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The floods surrounded me. Your waves and billows passed over me. Actually, it was the sailors who threw him into the sea, but Jonah looks beyond them. He recognized the hand of God in everything that transpired. On every side, this man was surrounded by the flesh of fish and the waters of the sea. And just as Jonah was literally encompassed, so we often are figuratively encompassed, aren't we? We face hardships in this life, we endure trials, we experience difficulties of all sorts, and oftentimes we feel enclosed on every side with nothing else but prayer. And that's exactly where God wants us. Relying on His grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah felt that way as he witnessed the invasion of the Babylonians. You remember Lamentations chapter 3? This is what Jeremiah said. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. And perhaps someone here today feels that way. And your only option is to seek the Lord. And Jonah illustrates for us our Lord's readiness to help in time of need. God is ready and willing to hear your prayer and to guide your steps and to provide relief. It may not be in the form or at the time that you want, but he's willing. And Jonah describes sinking to the depths, encircled by weeds and descending to the bottom. And in vivid terms like these, he tells us that he felt as if he were drowning. 
The waters engulfed him, and the deep surrounded him, and his life was in danger. But as we'll see, the Lord was a very present help in time of trouble. And I want you to notice how Jonah includes with his descriptions a profound note of gladness and gratitude. Did you notice that? Obviously, he wrote this down after he had been delivered from the fish, so it makes sense that for him to sprinkle these glad and grateful comments throughout the prayer. Verse 2, you heard my voice. Verse 4, I'll look again upon your holy temple. Verse 6, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. And as Jonah reflects upon these truths, his heart is beginning to overflow with thanks. How deeply grateful he was for being delivered from a watery grave. I hope you noticed that this language was that of childlike faith and love. As you can imagine, being swallowed was a horrific experience. Nightmares. But Jonah realized that apart from the great fish, he would have drowned. I want you to see how he drew from the Psalms, the language to frame his prayer. For example, Psalm 120, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. Very similar. Psalm 42, All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Very similar. As a matter of fact, he had hidden these Psalms in his heart. He had framed his thoughts according to them, and he was well-schooled in the faith. Because God had intervened, and he gives thanks for this remarkable kindness because he had been preserved and tucked away in the bowels of that great fish. And whatever type of great fish that was, and we don't know, that swallowed him, it was a means of rescue. It functioned for Jonah as the ark did for Noah, a vessel of salvation. <laughs> Didn't look like that from the outside. And in that fish, Jonah's heart grew tender, and his repentance became clear, and he thanked his God for sending the fish and delivering him from its depths. And I think this helps illustrate the difference between living by faith and walking by sight. That's a biblical distinction that we can detect from Paul's correspondence, isn't it? Elder Miller read this earlier. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. It all has to do with the manner in which we navigate our way through this life. Do we navigate our life by things that we can see and understand with our physical senses? Or do we do so by the things we believe and embrace sincerely by faith? Is it by the world and the things of the world? Or is it by heaven and the things of the Spirit? Temporal things or eternal things? You know, as Christians, we can live by an eternal perspective. Notice when Paul wrote that statement, he was afflicted. We are afflicted, he said, persecuted, struck down, always caring about the death of Jesus, and that would be enough for me to be discouraged. But notice what he says. This light momentary affliction, unqualified, whatever it is you're going through, it's light and momentary 
preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And the only way that he could say that was doing so from the perspective of faith. Didn't look like that on the outside. From a worldly perspective, things looked bleak. And the situation was dire. But Paul believed that God was watching over him, training him, preserving him for his glory. Likewise, the prophet Jonah seemed to view his situation from the same principle. He was in the belly of a great fish at the bottom of the sea, and it seemed hopeless. But he called upon the Lord who heard his cry and landed him on dry ground. Who would have known? To the eye of sight, it looked grim, but to the eye of faith, he was safe and secure in the sovereign care of his God. Christians trained in the school of faith understand how this can be so. Jonah was in the great fish. Joseph was in Pharaoh's prison. Corey ten Boom was in the concentration camp. You've heard the story, I'm sure. Corey and her fellow prisoners were locked up in a dark, dank, maggot-infested cell in the concentration camp. And to the eye of sight, that was a miserable and grim place to be. Not even the guards would go in that cell. It was so awful. But therein lie the blessing. The women could study the Bible unmolested by the guards. There were conversions. Women were encouraged. They could face death confidently. It's an amazing thing of God's providence And so we come to verse 10, which concludes the first half of Jonah's remarkable story. And it says, the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So his ordeal is over. The trial had ended and Jonah could move about again. And the fish, God's instrument of salvation for Jonah, completed its mission. It sent the prophet to dry land and with the flick of the tail, it was gone. And Jonah was left to ponder once again his mission to the city of Nineveh. So I think we should rejoice in Christ, who accepts what is good and forgives what is bad. While in the belly of that great fish, Jonah offered prayer to the Lord. He had been burdened with guilt. He had been frightened by the sea. He sought God in prayer. And somebody says, well, listen, How can such a holy God accept the prayer of such a disobedient Jew? How can he do that? Well, we're told in Scripture that Jesus will neither break a bruised reed nor quench a smoldering wick. And so by implication, what that means is that he will neither, or he will accept that which grace enables, and he will pardon that which sin taints. He'll accept that which grace enables, and he'll pardon that which sin taints. So we should never let our weaknesses or sins totally discourage us. We're tempted, you and I are. We sin every day. The fact is we're weak, but Jesus is strong. 
And the Bible says that we should ask for help regarding our weaknesses and for pardon regarding our sin. And as the Spirit enables, we repent, we believe in Jesus, and he preserves us. So we get up, we brush ourselves off, and we press on in following our Savior. And notice with me how God heard and accepted Jonah's prayer, which was very imperfect, by the way. This prayer was not perfect. The fact is, nobody's prayer is acceptable apart from the mediation of Christ. He alone is the one who goes between this holy God and sinful man. And insofar as we trust in Jesus and pray in his name, our prayer is acceptable. Do you remember that illustration of the little boy who goes out to the field and he wants to pick a bouquet for his mother on Mother's Day? And he comes back. And the bouquet is a combination of little flowers and all kinds of weeds. And he gives it to his father to say, I'm giving this to mama. And the father turns around, picks out all the weeds very quickly, hands it back, and he gives this wonderful bouquet to his mother. That's what Jesus does with our prayers. He makes them acceptable to the father. James 5 He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Now, here's Elijah who had sins and weaknesses just like you and me. And yet God answered his prayer. And God did this this not because Elijah was without fault, but it's because Elijah had faith. And as we offer our prayers, tainted as they may be, Jesus makes them acceptable. This is why he intercedes for us. He makes us acceptable to God. Think of that. You're acceptable to God. He calls for the merit of his obedience and his sacrifice to be applied to us. And the Father sees us, therefore, clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Phenomenal statement. I could never say that unless the Bible told us so. And in the spirit of Christ, he helps our weaknesses and enables us to pray. And that tells me that not one prayer, not one groan, not one tear of any believer will ever be forgotten. And our Redeemer, he is so gracious that he will never despise any believer's prayer. According to the measure of grace received, we will indeed pray, and the Lord accepts what is good, and he picks out what is bad, and he makes it acceptable. That's why he says he takes pleasure in what we do here. Secondly, let's also recognize from this story that a Christian in this life mingles grace and corruption. Let's face it, Jonah was being disciplined for his blatant disobedience. We've said that many times. But out of mercy, God did not punish him. Out of love, he chastised him. And thus we find in his prayer the evidence of both grace and corruption. Look at verse 4. I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Driven away because of corruption, disobedience. Look upon the temple because of grace. 
And I think it illustrates for us the reality of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Jonah was a true believer, but on that ship, his faith was at a low ebb. And any casual observer may have thought that he was anything but a believer. <laughs> like David for those nine months at least, right? But God was using some severe measures, and he didn't destroy the man. He could have. He'd have a right to. But the Lord knew what was in Jonah, and he wished to fan his faith into flame. In the midst of the smoke of the smoldering wick, the flicker was beginning to be fanned. Do you see the smoke of the wick come driven away from your sight? Do you detect the grace given to the reed? I shall again look upon your holy temple. And every sincere Christian like Jonah mingles true faith with corruption. And Christ is gentle in the way that he gradually sanctifies his children you and me. He doesn't eradicate the corruption all at once, but he does so over time. And one reason for this is to help guard you and I against pride and presumption. He permits us to struggle to keep us humble, to guard us against that sinful sense of superiority or that false sense of security. Remember the Pharisee standing by himself, praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And do you see how he grounds his confidence in his perceived sanctification and not his justification? Fascinating. He boasts not in the Lord, but in himself, in what he himself does. His pride and presumption were cloaked in a very religious garb. So I think what this teaches you and I is to find our identity and to ground our confidence and to cultivate our assurance in biblical ways. I'm going to talk about that. To find our identity, to ground our confidence, and to cultivate our assurance in biblical ways. Identity, confidence, and assurance have to do with the great ultimate questions of life. Who am I? Identity. How does God see me? Confidence. How do I see myself? Assurance. As for our identity, who am I? I am joined to Christ as my head and husband. It's not something I earned. It's not something I purchased. It's something I received. The child is identified by his or her parents and the home in which she lives. She bears their name and they dwell together. And her identity is based not on her performance and not on her position and not on her profitability. She's one of the family. And so the Christian is identified by his union with Christ. We bear his name. We're in his home. Our identity is not tied to our performance or our position or our profitability to the church. It's something we receive. 
You're a child of God, an heir of salvation. And for reasons known only to him, God chose us from before the foundation of the world. And when he called you in Christ, the Holy Spirit joined you to Christ, inseparable. You'll never lose it. That's your identity. We're Christians by God's grace. But then as for our confidence, how does God see me? That's based on our justification. It's one of the benefits that flow from our union with Christ. Our sins are cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus. John says in Revelation 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So by his blood we receive forgiveness and are made acceptable in God's sight. There is now no condemnation. We're clothed in the robe of righteousness, as we said earlier, and the judge has declared us righteous in his sight. A judicial declaration. I don't have to fear the judgment. It's coming. Christ is my refuge and my shield. And justification equally frees every believer from the revenging wrath of God. And that's perfect in this life. From the youngest believer to the most seasoned saint, it's a declaration from the celestial judge that you and I are righteous. That's confidence. But then there's assurance. How do I see myself? It's cultivated in part by sanctification. It's another one of those benefits flowing from union with Christ as the Spirit infuses grace into the true believer through the appointed means. It's an amazing process. As sin is progressively subdued, the Christian grows more and more like Jesus, and the Spirit enables him to see evidence, however slight, of spiritual growth. That's sanctification. And thus, his assurance of salvation develops. He can sense progress. But it's not equal in all of us, nor is it perfect in any of us. It's imperfect in this life, our sanctification. And so assurance can ebb and flow. Some of you are assured today. Others of you, you're struggling. Am I a Christian? All of us have periods of dryness, difficulty. And thus, to find your identity or to base your confidence on your sanctification is disastrous. At one point, David was at a low ebb spiritually. His faith was barely a flicker. Had he based his confidence on his sanctification, he could have despaired. But notice what he says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's justification. And yet so often, like the Pharisee, we evaluate ourselves by our spiritual duties and services, don't we? Let's not lead with sanctification, else we risk discouragement and despair. And particularly in low periods, we may wrongly conclude that we have no grace. Look at me. I fell again. I can't be a Christian. 
Though we love Christ, we see the remainder of corruption and we think we're not safe. That's when we remember God's call and rely upon the truth of justification. Let's not make the mistake of the Pharisee. God, I thank you. I'm not like these other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I go to church. I sit in the pew. I sing the praises. That's not my identity. That's not my confidence. The Pharisee's identity was not found in Christ. He didn't understand justification. His identity and confidence were found in and based upon his religious performance. In Christ, we find our identity, and in him alone, we receive a pardon. Let me read a quote very quickly from one of my heroes, of course, John Flavel. He says, In Christ is the grand relief for a soul distressed by the guilt of sin. When all other reliefs have been tried, it is the blood of this great sacrifice, sprinkled by faith upon the trembling conscience that must cool, refresh, and sweetly compose and settle it. The great question of your conscience and mine is simply this. Is God satisfied? If so, my conscience is satisfied. If he's not, the worm of conscience will devour the soul. We need sin-pardoning blood conscience-pacifying blood, soul-quieting blood to be at peace. And the Bible says we must apply that blood to ourselves by believing the gospel because the death of Christ never saved one soul without a believing application. So let's follow Jonah's example and be both thankful and doxological in prayer, trusting in Christ, giving thanks for his grace, rejoicing in God's love. This is what we mean by doxological. We thank God and praise his name. And the true Christian spirit is one of sincere gratitude for our Savior and his salvation, as Elder Miller prayed earlier today. Thank God for the inexpressible gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. That even though we are mingled with grace and corruption, the Lord Jesus makes us acceptable in your sight. We thank you that our identity is in our union with Christ. That our confidence is based upon our justification by his merit. And that we can grow in assurance as we see the evidence of grace in our sanctification. Help us now to praise your name, for we ask it in Jesus' name. listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.